We're going to dive right in tonight as there's quite a bit of Scripture. We're going to be all over the place in First and Second John, Hebrews and Corinthians, Thessalonians, a bunch of stuff out of Timothy. Um, let's just get right after it tonight, continuing in this series on the first letter of John in First John chapter 2, looking specifically at verse 18, Antichrists and the Antichrist. And actually... It probably ought to be titled Antichrists and Antichrist, but there is so much nuance between the plural and the singular, and my redneck tongue is so thick, if we said it that way, um, <laughs> I'm not sure that you would be able to tell the difference. Uh, so for our purposes tonight, Antichrists and the Antichrist in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, just a quick, and I mean quick, bringing up to speed. John writes this letter. It's an informal letter contending for the faith. He writes proclaiming the message of the gospel that was manifest in the Christ who John and the rest of the apostles saw with their own eyes, heard with their own ears, and touched with their own hands. The message that they heard from him from the very beginning of his ministry, the message that we have been looking at with the Sermon on the Mount uh, on Sunday mornings as we consider the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus came preaching. And this message has moved through His people by the Holy Spirit across time. At this point in time, nearly 60 years later when it was written, now nearly 2,000 years later, even down to us in order that through this message we may have fellowship with John and the apostles and all the generations of faith that came before us, a fellowship that is in the person of the gospel, not just the message of the gospel. And that's John's whole point, is the message gets you to the person, which is Jesus Christ. And this commandment is both old and new. It's in Him, and it's in you and me. It's old and in Him, ancient even, but now revealed so that it is new and in us in the new creation. A new reality. So whether you're young or old, immature or experienced, you have a new being. The being of one who is overcome. And having been separated from the world and attached to the kingdom of heaven, has no love for the world. Out of which is about to rise, and even now is rising, the greatest of evils. One that is multifaceted and exist across both time and place. It's what John speaks of in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, where he says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Um, it's, uh, it's funny to me because, you know, there is, when it comes to eschatology, there's a lot of dispensationalism in America, particularly here in the Bible Belt, and it's all divided up. You know, they keep their... Forgive me, but dispensationalists and, and evolutionists have a lot in common 
And one of the things they have in common is the, the, because of the fallacy of their premise, they're continually having to add more and more time and more and more ages to get the thing to work out. But when you talk to a dispensationalist, no matter which ones you talk to, they always think that they belong to the age of the church of Ephesus, you know, because if you're going to belong to one, that's the one you want to belong to, the one that has the open door set before it that no one can close. No one wants to be like, yeah, we hang out in Laodicea. But the fact of the matter is, is this, is John says that the last hour is not coming, but is currently here. Children, it is the last hour. It's right now. You ask, when is the last hour? When is the last age? When is the last period coming? And the answer is not only are you in it, but the church has been existing in it now for nearly 2,000 years. And John is not the only one who would proclaim this truth among the apostles and amongst the writers of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the author of Hebrews in chapter 9, in verses 22 through 28, and Guys, we're going to read some pretty big passages tonight. I mean, no huge ones, but we're going to read a lot of pretty good-sized ones because these topics are often complex, and I just never really think it's a good idea to, you know, make grand theological arguments out of fragments of sentences or just portions of a thought. <laughs> so... Um, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 22 through 28, says that the end of the ages and the last hour began not with the incarnation of Christ, but with the sacrifice of Christ unto propitiation. Which is, and when you realize that, you start to realize why Jesus, when he began preaching, began preaching saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's almost here. Because the last age was going to start in three years with His sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 through 28. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So here we find ourselves once again where we were at, well, where we were going to be this morning before we cut it off a little short. Speaking of the nature of Christ's sacrifice to propitiate His people. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, that's the things of the temple worship here on earth, to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, to be the very intercessor that John was talking about just a couple of verses back, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But, as it is, so you want to know how it is? Here's how it is. As it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. The sacrifice of Christ and the propitiation that was 
bought when He entered the temple in heaven defines the final age. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as is appointed man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. John was one of the men that got to witness the end of the semi-final age and the conversion into the end of the ages with the sacrifice and the propitiation of Jesus. And just as a side note, and this is just a pastor's note, so you know, caution, opinion here. I think it's one that Scripture gives a lot of innuendo towards, but I do not know of anywhere where I could really truly nail it down for you. But it appears that the ages... We're going to talk about them that way because that's the way Scripture talks about them and not dispensations. Because there's one thing that Scripture makes very clear is God does not change and the economy of grace does not change. Every single human being that's ever been saved from Adam on down was saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Some of us, because of where we found ourselves in time and place, might understand more details about the mystery that was hidden in ages past but now revealed. And some of us may have understood less, but it was the same mystery that was operating in all of the people of God. Whether you want to talk about Adam, whether you want to talk about Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, King David, John, me and you. It appears the ages may well be defined by the extent to which the mystery of the gospel is revealed in the creation. Which is why when the last revelation came of behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and then He did it and now there is no more until His second coming defines the last age. It is the last hour. Therefore, the only age in which the revealed church has existed is the last age. Which is why a lot of times it gets referred to as the church age. When people talk about the church age, what happened from, from you know, the resurrection right, right on down, when we talk about the church age and the last age, we're talking about the same age. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. We'll look at all the way from 1 to 11. Um, Paul writes and says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now, if that's the case, and it is, he, he came once for all at the end of the ages as the sacrifice of himself. Then when we're talking about Moses being under the cloud, we're talking about a different age when there was a different level of the mystery revealed. They knew some, but they didn't know as much as would later be known. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about the Exodus here. And were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So once again, continuity of grace, not dispensationalism. What was saving the people that came out of Egypt? Jesus Christ was saving the people that came out of Egypt. But in a way that was hidden more 
than the way He is saving us now. But guys, don't get, don't be prideful here. Because Paul tells us that even with all of the grace that we understand now, we still see as a mirror darkly. And that when we see Jesus Christ face to face, what we'll realize is there was way more that we didn't understand than we actually did. Doesn't mean, and please hear me, doesn't mean anything that's been revealed is wrong, it just means it's incomplete. The rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. Something that happened in a previous age is not confined to that age. It's still functioning in the grace of God. It happened as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 22,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. There's a lot we could say there, but we won't. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The end, the, the, the final age, the last age, begins with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for Himself that produces the manifest church that can be seen who exist in this final age. Little children, it is the last hour. And myself and us as a church culture, particularly here in the West, so often do not act like it is. It is the last hour. And along with the last age and along with the last hour the last period whatever label you want to put on it as long as you don't say last dispensation <laughs> along with that comes other realities besides the manifest grace of God in the church John continues and he says children it is the last hour and so as you have heard the antichrist is coming the antichrist is coming and of course if we're living in the last age and there's not another age after this and the antichrist is coming then he is coming sometime during this age but if we were familiar with what Jesus said in Matthew 24 we would already know that because in the gospel of Matthew in chapter 24 I think you guys are familiar with this, so we'll just hit the high points. When Jesus is, is walking away from the temple, it says in verse 1 that... Well, let's just skip down to verse 3. As He sat on the Mount of Olives, His disciples came to Him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of Your coming and of the end of the age? What does this look like? And Jesus begins to tell them, and he tells them that part of the end of the age will include the rise of what the prophet Daniel called the abomination of desolation. 
It is the particular activity of the Antichrist walking in to the Holy of Holies in the temple and <coughs> excuse me, declaring himself to be God. And so they ask this question, and Jesus begins to answer it, and he talks about the catalyst for this event being the rise of and the increase of the spirit of lawlessness. And so in verse 9 it says, They will put you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will fall away, and betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We call this last hour, we call the, the final age, the church age, because of the mystery of Jesus Christ in His people, the church that is being revealed, but it is not the only thing that is being revealed. It is not the only thing that is increasing during this time. It is also an age of the increase of lawlessness. Guys, with, when, it, when it comes to the rebellion of Satan, it has always been a game of brinksmanship. And if you, you want the good old southern version of that, it means chicken. One of us will raise the stakes and we'll see if the other guy's got the guts to meet him where he's at. And then we'll raise the stakes and we'll see if you got the guts to meet him where he's at. Lord doesn't need guts, it's a sure thing. Satan's insanity and his rebellion. Well, guts and stupidity aren't the same. Guts and stupidity often look alike, but they're not the same thing. His insanity of his rebellion blinds him from wisdom. And he continues to, every time the mystery is further revealed, then he steps into the next place in line. And then in verse 15, we see these two things increasing together. The gospel of the kingdom like a juggernaut enduring to the end of the age. The increase of lawlessness in the face of that. And then this. So when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see it, when it comes to its final expression, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand and let, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He goes on to describe what the tribulation will look like. The reason that it comes at this moment in time Jesus says, is because an increase of lawlessness. An increase of lawlessness that will eventually, it will eventually reach its ultimate end. A spirit of lawlessness that is moving towards an eventuality and its ultimate expression that is nothing less than the man of lawlessness, Antichrist himself. Paul writes at length, to the Thessalonians about what this is going to look like. And it is truly interesting to me. It seems, for the most part, that um, there's a lot of reasons probably why that we don't even necessarily need to go into. Um, but it seems to me, for the most part, that a lot of times when, when we're asked questions about the Antichrist, about the increase of lawlessness, um, that we looked first to the wrong places. 
So the first thing we typically want to do is run to the Revelation and, and start looking there. And, and that is, as we've discussed before, that is paramount to um, you know, opening a book in the middle and starting to read. Um, Jesus says specifically that the first thing you need to do is go back and look at Daniel. Uh, and then well before um, John would write the Revelation, years before, decades before, Paul was in Thessalonica teaching them specifically, as apparently he did in all of the cities where he founded churches. I mean, he was giving them a complete gospel. If you'll remember when he wrote to the Romans, he said, I wanted to tell you all the stuff that I tell these other places when I go in and plant a church, and I haven't been able to do it because I haven't been able to come to you, so here it is. And then, you know, some of the heaviest eschatology in the New Testament is found in, in, in chapters, you know, 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans. Paul was teaching this everywhere he went. Eschatology is not a side note in Scripture. Um, it, it, is, it is foundational doctrine uh, of Orthodox Christianity. And so Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and there's been some people come in that has tried to confuse them about what he's taught. Paul's not telling them something new. He says, I want to remind you of what I taught you when I was with you. So, the, so this isn't Paul coming up with new info for him. This is Paul reminding them of what they already knew. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So here is a guy that is defined... His character, his person, his being, he's not just a man of lawlessness, he's the man of lawlessness. Lawlessness is what he is. He is the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that, and here's your definition straight out of Daniel for the abomination of desolation, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That, that's exactly what it sounds like. It means at some point in time, after a, dividing the land for gain and tearing down the Dome of the Rock, if it's still there at that point in time, and the, and the building of a new temple, and all of these sorts of things, at some point in time, this guy is going to go, whoa, 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 stop the sacrifices. He's going to walk into the Holy of Holies, push back the curtain, sit down on top of the, top of the Ark of the Covenant, and says, I'm him. The testimony of this has only happened once before. It was Antiochus Epiphanes. The butcher. Story for a different day. What's motivating this guy? He says this. He, he will sit down in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things? Guys, I'll, I'll soapbox here for just 30 seconds because we don't have time. But, but it drives me crazy when people tell me that these doctrines are not major doctrines of the faith. When, when people say stuff to me like me, well, we we can agree on we can agree on on uh, you know the major things. Let's not make the minor things major. Friends, in Paul's mind, this is major. 
Don't you know that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in the last time. For, here's what's motivating him. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Man, in this last age, you've got two mysteries that are both at work and they're opposed to each other. You have the mystery of the gospel being revealed and you have the mystery of lawlessness being revealed. This thing is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus, not an angel, this is, this is not King David, it, King David may have been a testimony swinging that, <laughs> swinging that sling, but this is the man of lawlessness and so he gets the man of lawfulness. Jesus Christ Himself will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. A lawless man and a lawless demon. With all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The spirit of lawlessness is nothing less than the partnership of the fallen image bearers whether terrestrial in men or spiritual in what the New Testament would collectively call demons or the Old Testament would refer to as either the sons of God or Elohims themselves. The fallen spiritual being or celestial being, the fallen temporal being, the fallen terrestrial being, both together in alliance against their Creator. And because this is not embodied just in an individual man, but is a spirit at work first that leads to an eventuality of the ultimate expression of the most lawless man who has ever lived embodied by the most lawless spiritual being that has ever existed in the Antichrist himself because this spirit is what produces that and this partnership is what produces that. It's producing lots of of similar things on its way to its ultimate expression. And so John says, Children, it is the last hour, and so of you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrist, plural, have come. The spirit of lawlessness is already at work. It's producing what, uh, if you were in the manufacturing business today, you would call prototypes. Um, what doctrinally you would probably call archetypes. Ones that are antichrist of nature. Just not the perfected expression thereof. It's what's being produced out of the last age. Man, in the last age you've got the... the You've got the gospel of the kingdom revealed. Man, that mystery can be seen, but you've got another mystery that's parallel to it that is also being made manifest. I think if the church really understood and appreciated that today, we would probably stay a lot more frosty than what we do. 
myself first in the list. We would stay a lot more frosty in what we do. We would have our head much more on a swivel. Our churches would probably look more like barracks than they do like entertainment centers. If you look at the nature of the last days, what lawlessness looks like in action, everywhere it's described, all you have to do is turn on the TV to see all of the things that are descriptive of the revealing of this mystery and of this age. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Paul will write again to Timothy in his second letter. Apparently this is something that for the young pastor he really wants to drill into him. He's like, look around. This is why the social gospel is such an abject failure. We talked about social gospel a couple weeks ago. This is why social gospel, this is why the, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, man, the light of the world, light of the world evangelism is not social gospel. It may use social things in its service, but its end is not to make the world a better place. Its end is to promote the kingdom of heaven. Now, because the kingdom of heaven is good, ultimately, yes, that will make the world a better place. Yes, where you see Christianity spread, you see disease decline, you see social misfunction decline, you see education go up. All of those things are historically true because God is good. But that's not the point of light of the world evangelism. The point of light of the world evangelism is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom so that the elect may hear it and believe and glory may be brought to God. That's the point. Paul says, look around you. It's a disaster. Your job is not to go to fix it, but to recognize it. If God sees fit to fix it through what you do, praise the Lord. But that's not the point of the kingdom of heaven. This earth has never been the point of the kingdom of heaven. The point of the kingdom of heaven is the king 2 Timothy writes to him, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Man, Paul's good with lists. I couldn't come up with that many descriptives if I had to. Avoid such people. Love what Paul says. This is basically what John said last week. Don't love the world or the things in it. Avoid such people. Now it's easy to understand why, man. This thing's giving rise to the Antichrist. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres, this is the magi magicians in Pharaoh's court. They oppose Moses so that these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. 
One of the most powerful statements is out of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through Peter says, now this is the second letter I'm writing to you. Do you notice the way that these apostles are hammering this stuff home? When Paul writes to Thessalonica, he writes about it in his first letter, he writes about it in his second letter, and he says, this is all the stuff I told you when I was there. Paul writes to Timothy, he writes about it in his first letter, he writes about it in his second letter. Peter says, now this is the second one I'm writing to you. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of His coming? Okay, we're going to talk about this next week on Sunday morning, but I'll just mention it here as well. One of the great deceptions that Satan is able to trap men into believing is based off of cultural memory. That is to say that whatever that the people you knew throughout your life what they remember and what they remember other people that were alive while they were alive remembering becomes a reality to us that is way more concrete than it actually is. And so, if, it, if your parents knew something to be a certain way and their parents knew something to be a certain way, and their parents knew something to be a certain way, that's about as far back as we can go as individuals. Most of us can't get to any kind of meaningful memory of a great-great-grandparent. Then it must have always been that way. And that is absolutely not the case. And you can apply this to science. You can apply it to doctrine. You can apply it the way we approach our worship whatever the case may be, but there's a weakness here in men. It says, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? Why do they ask this? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. One of the problems with popular science of our day is they look around, they get all of their equipment out, they measure something, whether it's the rate that it's occurring at or the percentage of occurrence or whatever. They watch it for a couple of years, maybe they watch it for a generation or two, and then they make the assumption because it's occurring at a certain rate or a certain percentage, it's always occurred at the same rate and it's always occurred at the same percentage. And that right there is an assumption that will sink your hypothetical ship. It will destroy a hypothesis. It will destroy your doctrine. They will say that ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until a day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Peter says, just because it's the way you knew it, your parents knew it, your grandparents knew it, your great-grandparents knew it, all the way back to the fifth or seventh generations really doesn't mean anything as to whether or not it's going to be that way tomorrow. 
Because man, by the time you got to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the last age that was spoken of in Scripture was the age of Moses. That's when they learned everything about the mystery revealed that would be the testimony and the shadow of the temple and the lamb sacrifice and all of those things. That was the last one, man. We date Moses at 1500 B.C. Give or take five years. I say we date Moses. We date the Exodus at 1500 B.C. Man, 1500 years is a long time. But here we are at the end of the age. We're just almost 2,000 years deep. But every one of them's come to an end. And when it did, the people that it comes upon were not expecting it. Jesus speaks about it this way. He says, man, you need to be watching. Because there will be two in the fields. There will be two at the mill. You need to be watching. And so, I'll finish with this because we're already past time. I want to be done. If this is the case... Now, all of a sudden you go, this is why John says, don't love the world. (laughs) Right? Because the world in this age is producing a testimony that is the antithesis of the kingdom of heaven. And that is seen not only in the fact that Antichrist is coming, but many Antichrists have come. And we we could name, you know, historical examples of that. There's plenty of them, whether you want to talk about Antiochus that we talked about earlier, or, or Nero, or, or Adolf Hitler, um, whatever the case may be. Um, they all have certain markers that go along with them. Um, but what is the litmus test? Because, man, this stuff is out there. And, and Paul and Peter have described what it looks like. Man, here's, here's their attitudes. Here's the way they approach things. This is the way they treat their parents. This is the way they treat each other. This is the deception that is going out and the lies that are being made about, about what the kingdom is. John tells us very specifically, he tells us, once again, these guys are driving this point home. In, both of his, in two of his three epistles, he tells us in... The first letter, he tells us again in the second. So in, in letter number one, here in 1 John, over in chapter 4, in verses 1 through 6, I promise I'm almost done. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The problem is not that you just got snake oil salesmen out there. The problem is, is that many of the snake oil salesmen have a spiritual reality that lies behind them. And so it's not just important to test the man, it's important to test the spirit that's behind it. Because you can't have lawlessness if it's just men. At least not the spirit of lawlessness that is being talked about as being revealed in this age. It has to have a, it has to have a spiritual it has to have a celestial image-bearing component. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Here's your litmus test. How do you know? Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now you understand that we often think of Jesus Christ as a name. Jesus Christ is the combination of both name and title. This is like saying, I can't even use the one we've got now. This is like saying, Ronald Reagan, President. Right? This is name and title. So you're identifying a person and you're identifying what they are. 
And then with the term in the flesh is the manner of coming. So you have Jesus of Nazareth. This man is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is the Lamb that has come to take away the sin of the world. He is the offspring and the ancestor of David. He's all of these things. He is the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ and He has come in the flesh. That is to say, Jesus of Nazareth was not simply a man who then the Spirit of God descended on like a dove and He became the Christ as long as the Spirit was on Him and then at some point in time it departed. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ and He has come in the flesh. If this is confessed, it is of God. And that's a mouthful, especially when you start considering the way that in this culture, name and title carried a book this thick worth of description and meaning. Identified who you were. This is the one. You, know, you understand that to confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ that came in the flesh, you have to confess along with Him that you search the Scriptures thinking in them you will find eternal life, but every single one of them speak about Me. When He says confessing that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh, that means this. This is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. See, don't be discouraged. The thing about this kind of stuff is when you start really realizing what's going on, it has a tendency to get you all weirded out. But John says, don't be. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So you got two things. The confession of Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ come in the flesh and all that that entails is from God. Anyone who denies it is of the world. And anyone who will not listen to what the apostles said of the world. I had an experience one time with, uh, with this one of, one of these spirits <laughs> wearing a human suit uh, at a gym. Believe it or not, I used to go to gyms. Toby thinks I should again. He's probably right. An experience with one of these guys in a gym. Sit down beside him. Never seen the guy in my life. Sitting in a sauna. He looks over at me and said, so you fancy yourself some kind of preacher or something? Well, this is a little weird. And I said, well, I am. And, and he said, well, I want to tell you something. It's the first thing out of his mouth. I thought it was a weird angle to take until I was reminded of this. He said, let me tell you something. Every one of those apostles was a liar. He said, now there was stuff that happened and it was true. But those apostles are liars. And I thought, buddy... We went after that for about two or three minutes and I finally said, you know what, the Lord can rebuke you and I'll, I'll take my sweat elsewhere. So that's how you identify it. What do you do? Second letter of John, verses 4 through 11, which is basically the entire book, but the greeting and, and, the, and the sign off. But what do you do? Here's what John says you do. Because we're, we don't have time. You don't want to get mixed up with this the wrong way. Um, by and large, it's passive. And, and yet it, it's so uncomfortable that, that, 
that we have a hard time bringing ourselves to do it. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one that we have had from the beginning. This is always with us. We love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Man, walk in it. Why? Because there is a danger that is being revealed that is apart from this. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. Okay, we know from his first letter exactly who these people are. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Deceivers who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but many will, but, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And you want gritty practical application. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Friends, that does not set well with the modern view of evangelism in the church today. They said if they bring this saying that Christ has not come in the flesh, you don't let them come through your front door. You don't bring them into your house. You don't even greet them. Whoa. i got to tell you, I'm uncomfortable with that. Man, if somebody says, hey man, how you doing? If, if a Jehovah's Witness who does not confess this, they do not confess Christ coming in the flesh, it's one thing for me to go, okay, I'm going to stand on the porch and talk to you. And let me tell you guys, I've been convicted for years. I used to just tell them no and shut the door in their face. They bring these little kids up on the porch. I don't want the testimony to be that Christians are the people who shut the door in your face. I don't. So, so man, I, but here's this statement. Don't let them in your house. So that's one thing. You can stand on the porch and be nice and be cordial. I've stood out there for an hour before, you know, but you're not coming in. I'm not taking your stuff. We'll go over that, but man, not to greet somebody. If somebody, I mean, look, you can see, you know, you see them from a mile away. And they come up and go, hey, how you doing today? Hope you're having a good day. Man, it is so ingrained in me to respond in kind. That I'm just not comfortable not doing it, but. Like, I'll do it without thinking about it. It's just automatic. Man, I'm doing great. How are you? Good to see you. I think that here at the end of the age that we have grown um, to some degree ignorant of the way that certain spiritual realities are tied to certain physical realities in our world. 
Scripture speaks just off the top of my head to a few of them as being greeting somebody, welcoming them into your home, or breaking bread with them. These are big, heavy things, and I don't think we take them as being big, heavy things. And, I, and I'm not here tonight to tell you I understand the manner in which they're big and heavy. I just know that John's not playing around. He's driving this home over and over and over. So is Peter. So is Paul. And he says, not only do you not let them in your house, you don't greet them because if you greet them, I mean, he defines this. He doesn't just say, don't do it, and we all sit around and wonder why. Is it going to be a bad testimony? What's the story? No, he tells us whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. It means don't give him a good word. It's a heavy thing. But the fact of the matter is, is we're living in heavy times. When we read those lists, they're slanderers and they're insolent and they're rebellion. And we look around the world and we look on the news and we go, oh yeah, I can see it there, 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 and there. But these guys aren't talking about just what makes the headlines. They're talking about what's happening as you're walking down the street. How you do that, the way that Christ did it, where He was so open to speak to those that were lost and would listen while being so matter-of-fact with those that are in rebellion, I don't know that I actually know. I don't know that I'll figure it out. I think that's one of the things that you're striving after all the way to the end, is how do you perfect this where it, it looks the way that Christ did it? But I know what the apostles say about how to get started. That's a mouthful for a Sunday night. We're really late. Sorry, guys. Um... I hope it's been worth your time and we will continue to press into that um, in, uh, in the weeks to, uh, to come. Brian, you want to pray for us?